This is Coda Radio, episode 382 for October 5th, 2020. Friends and welcome to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and the world of technology. This episode is brought to you by Cloud Guru. Cloud Guru now includes Cloud Playgrounds, Azure AWS, or Google Cloud Platform sandboxes on ACG's credit card, not yours. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every week, established down there in his fortress of development, it is our host, Mr. Michael Dominic. Hello, Mike. What's up? It's Florida. Let's do it live, which I guess means let's get an alligator and some warm beer. I don't know. Yeah. And speculate about what makes the tides come in and out. (laughs) I think that's what you guys do. You guys do that down there. I know plenty of people down here who will absolutely tell you about why uh, the whole round earth thing. That's nonsense. That's how they get you. Let me ask you something. Oh, God. Is it even possible to work anymore? Are you getting anything done? I'm getting stuff done. I mean, I'm you know what? I'm working a strange schedule, but I feel like there's a that felt like a pregnant question. What, what's what's going on there, Chrissy? Oh, I just feel like you know. I mean, everything's so nutty. There's just so much going on between election stuff and family stuff, and your buddy with the hairdo in the hospital, and just like all of the just. There's so much. It feels like there is a massive cognitive load just to existing right now. I'm not off my game completely, but I'm feeling like I'm drugged down. Like, I, I feel like I'm a desktop operating system that's running 15 too many background tasks. You know what I mean? Uh, you're Windows 7. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to have my wizard installer check for an update while my firmware gets checked. And also, by the way, there's an antivirus scan that needs to run. I mean, it just feels like there's so much going on beyond just work right now. I don't know. Maybe I successfully in the past have managed to just get incredible tunnel vision and just completely block out all the stuff that's going on. But it feels like more than ever, it's harder to do that. There's more craziness happening all the time, and it's harder and harder to focus. Yeah, I mean, I would say due to issues primarily of like childcare and the inability to like take an hour off and you know go watch a baseball game somewhere or go to a driving range because for some reason that has become weird and hard and I just like you have to get a tea tame for the driving range now, which is nuts to me, but that's a whole other. Old man Mike complains about golf. We don't we don't need to go there. <laughs> Although our buddy is a avid golfer and I maybe I should just fly to Mar-a-Lago. You didn't uh, mean to actually, I mean, infer that we would betray our golfing relationship with our buddy with the hairdo. Like we can't talk about that on air. Obviously. No, never. I mean, we were actually contractually obligated to only golf at certain resorts <laughs> to begin with the T. I guess what I'm saying is. I don't know. Damn it, Mike. It feels like there's a hell of a lot going on. We haven't even gotten to the holidays yet, which always are productivity stealers. And on top of that, it's taking me forever to just get certain things done. I guess I'm feeling a little I'm feeling a little salty because uh, in your parlance, I, I had a product launch last night. And then I had to roll it back immediately because I realized I I had so much going on that I had made one fundamental assumption that was wrong. I mean, I had this thing all lined up. I even I had a mention for it in Linux Action News and everything. And oh, that's the thing you pulled back. Yeah. Well, there was an an announcement that we made Linux Action News that I had to cut. Oh, we record the episode. We even release it. I'm such an idiot. I'm so dumb. I'm such a stupid man that I thought that I could I'd have everything done and lined up by the time the show went out. So I stopped recording, say, let's just for, you know, stop recording around 2 p.m. Show's going to go out at 7 p.m. I know I can get this done. I'll have it all ready. But the problem was I made one fundamental assumption about how something technically works on this platform provider. And we got everything done and lined up, all queued up to execute. And I got to the point where I needed to flip the switch. At some point in my head, I made a shift without realizing it too. I need to supply the feeds to this thing so I can start doing that. And I, at some point just in my head, thought I solved the problem and assumed I knew what the answer was. And forgot to check my math. And by the time we got to it last night, it was 9 p.m. 
I had been working on it all day. I realized my screw up. I had to go pull the episode of Linux Action News and recut. Joe had already gone to bed, who's the normal editor. I went and got the source file and recut it and republished it myself because he wasn't going to be up until, you know, the next morning and um, had to just just scratch all the work, all the work, all of it. And I don't know. I, I just I feel like I got too too much has been going on. And I wasn't able to focus properly, and I made a couple assumptions because I'm going quick, and I'm running gun and doing it live. Tides come in, times tides come out, can't explain that style. And I messed up. And I wasted an evening of my time, Wes's time, my wife's time. Like, I just, I don't know, I blew it, you know? Yeah, that, I mean, oof, that's, and, and you, you obviously feel that the cognitive weight of you know, 2020 being in a bit anyway. I mean, I'm looking at, I'm kind of looking at where did I make my mistakes and realize, okay, I made an assumption here. I didn't spend enough time researching this there. And I'm trying to think why that happened. You know, it's no doubt it's relaunching the business, spinning all that up. And that's just been a huge effort. But I think too, it's just 2020 is such a shit show that it's become distracting and it took my eye off the ball. I just feel bad feel bad for wasting people's time. I feel dumb for making an assumption when I had identified that as an issue I needed to look into. But then at some point, just, I don't know how I made that mistake. I just thought I had taken care of it. And, oh, man. But presumably it's a relatively fixable mistake, so. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I just have to come up with another way to do what I wanted to do. Which I'll get there, but it it's not ideal. And create some additional problems that we have to solve. And, yeah. Yeah. But it's all, you know, it's all complicated. One day I'll get it all fixed, then I'll talk about it. And You know it would have actually fixed your problem, right? Hmm. I don't want to leak what the thing is. <laughs> if you were running on SUSE. Oh, oh, man. Yeah, so first of all, I suppose also apologies to Jonathan Meek this week who burnt his chicken after listening to our show. <laughs> you know, you're, you're really taking a lot of hits from the audience since we came back, man. I know. I know. You know, it's because I got spicy with the Seuss take and uh, I thought this would be the safe space for it. <laughs> yeah, I love that he's out there barbecuing, listening to the show, and he got so wrapped up in our Seuss take that his chicken burned. The rest of his meal turned out all right. Jordan wrote in. He, I feel like maybe he's with me. He says he's sick of that old Seuss smell. He says, I have an old, used, old, unsupported version of open Seuss at my job. I have to use it every day. None of our clients use OpenSUSE, but we have to support it internally for reasons that are frankly unknown to me and possibly not knowable. Things are just easier on Ubuntu and fun, but Jordan's stuck using SUSE every day, so he's with me on it. I uh, I tried to make good, Mike, when I, when I said I also recognize there's other distributions that are very popular that I don't use. And I didn't do it. You know, like I tried to make an equivalence to Alpine because I know Alpine Linux has tons of uses as a as a base for a Docker container or other containers. And so it's got potentially millions of deployments, but I don't have a single system that that's running Alpine right now, except for a Nextcloud container. That didn't satisfy the Seuss hounds. <laughs> I, I think they're technically lizards, but keep, keep, keep moving. I get you. Oh, yeah, right. Sorry. Yeah, right. Sorry. So I don't know how to dig myself out of this hole. I feel like two things can be true. I feel like it can be a functional workhorse operating system that has good engineering and uh, ideas behind it, while also being an esoteric branch of Linux that has a lot of oddities that you don't find on other systems and also doesn't have the wide range of support that things like Red Hat or Ubuntu or Debian have. And it doesn't have the documentation that Arch has. So I feel like those things both can be true. Um I hope that position is amenable to everybody because I don't discredit your use of it. I just think maybe if you had another choice or another chance or were building your infrastructure today, you just probably wouldn't use it. <laughs> you think that'll solve it? <laughs> you know, somehow I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they got me on a spicy day. What can I say? I was up late last night with a failed launch. <laughs> Honestly, if you had thrown a fake news in there or like, oh, the failing Sousa distro. See, now now I'm going to get yelled at again. See, right. Everybody knows. (laughs) I tell you what, you know, we off the air. I was kind of teasing that that uh, teenage boy came to my house with an oversized MAGA hat campaigning. Yeah. You know, he's he's actually very effective. Very on my mind. The big T right now. That's true. Well, yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. That is my point is that it's things because because the political situation is so ludicrous in the U.S., it's more distracting than it normally is, I feel like. It's on the mind more than it normally is. It's on the mind, yeah. 
when you've got ADD, it's really a trick. <laughs> it's like somebody is like uh, spamming your brain. Uh, but we'll get to the spamming here in a moment. We've been getting a lot of emails about the coder challenge. So I feel like there's something here. And I got an idea, Mike, I want to pass by it. So this one came in from Sean. And he wants to recommend Futhark. It's F-U-T-H-A-R-K language. Futhark. Um, don't know. He wanted to hear a take on it, maybe do a challenge, have Wes try it out. And I think, you know, we probably will do that. The problem is, is we don't want to, like, um, overstay our welcome with Wes because he has a day job now. And it's a Monday that we record this show. Monday in the middle of the day in the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, we want to do it, but we want to, like, you know, give him time and prep him. So I thought maybe we'd flip the script on the coding challenges for a little bit. While, while we will do them... What if in the meantime, every now and then, because we get we get basically some that come in on an ongoing basis, what if we tossed a couple out there for the audience to try it out and then send us in a contact submission with a report? It doesn't need to be a book, just your thoughts on what made that language of the week stand out or the one we're trying that week at least and what your thoughts are on it. But it could even just be several bullet points with a, like a paragraph, it, the shorter the better in some cases. And we could take some of these suggestions we get in of these really cool esoteric languages, and you could try it out. And we could try it here with uh, Futhark or whatever it is, which is a small programming language designed to be compiled to efficient parallel code. It's statically typed, data parallel, and has a purely functional array language. And it comes with a heavily optimized ahead-of-time compiler that presently generates GPU code via CUDA and OpenCL. The language itself is hardware agnostic, and so it can run on multi-core CPUs or single-core CPUs or, well, so on. So it could be kind of something pretty neat. It's not designed for graphics programming, but instead uses compute power of the GPU to accelerate data parallel array computations. So if anybody out there would have a use for something like this and could give us their take on it, this could be an opportunity. We'll have a link in the show notes. That could be a thing. It could be a thing we do on the show. What do you think, Mike? I like it. It uh, allows Wes to remain employed, which I'm, I can't speak for Wes, but I would be willing to bet is important to him. <laughs> and uh, it protects me from languages with names that sound like they're straight out of Lovecraft. I know. I can't even say it. <laughs> Here's a question. Uh-huh. Was this invented at the University of Ralea? Because, you know, <laughs> it seems like it could have been. Or it could be also like some Star Wars alien character. Like it could be some Star Wars lore, too. I could see it being a world in Star Wars or something. It's actually what Jar Jar renamed himself after ruining everything. <laughs> um, so we'll have that linked in the show notes where you can check it out and then uh, drop us a contact form with your take. I don't know, maybe from there, we take one that seems like it really got people's interest going, and then we, like, escalate that up to an actual official challenge, and then, you know, there's lead-up time and all that, and that could be a fun way. So we're going to, like, randomly pick languages and toss them out? Well, no, people got to send them in. Oh, okay. You know, like, so far, all the challenge submissions have really been from the audience, for the most part, recently. I mean, initially, you guys came up with some, right? But you see, we keep getting some from time to time. Like That's, I see. Yeah. So we'll throw them out there when we get them, see what people think. Squirrely Dave writes in and he's leaning towards rust hey guys new listener i found the show through everyone's favorite feed the jupiter broadcasting all shows feed i think that's something we should be talking about more as a network is the all shows feed because as we've gone independent we've relaunched shows some stuff is in the works and if you like what we're doing the all show feeds is obvious he says i'm an infrastructure person for my day job and the real extent of my coding knowledge is pretty limited, essentially just PowerShell, Bash, Python, and the like. Nothing wrong with that at all. And he goes on to say, I don't see myself shifting my career to software development, but I would like to learn a low-level programming language for my own personal knowledge, and because I'd like to be able to contribute back to the open-source community, and maybe one day develop a few things for myself. I'm leaning towards learning Rust, but I wonder if one of the C languages or something else would be a better choice. Thanks, Squirrely Dave. Leaning towards Rust. Do we dare steer him a different direction? Well, he did say C languages, so I am contractually obligated to say, why not Objective-C? <laughs> I was almost going to set you up for it. <laughs> I, I tick the box. No, Rust is a great choice. Um, we have a lot of bacon these episodes, but I got to fry some bacon. This is bacon oh. from the young MAGA lad who came to my house. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, by the way, this is why you should listen to the live stream. There was an entire story about a young man canvassing for MAGA who was very confused. 
Yep, jblive.tv on a Monday. I still don't believe that all these people, like, tweeting about Rust, you know, claiming to be doing Rust, are in fact doing much Rust. The reason I don't believe it is I just, I can't find, like, non-Apple, right, because, like, Apple's using Rust now, and, uh, you know, Google, whatever, non-places like that that are really hiring for Rust in large numbers, right? Also, there's just like not a ton of outside of the core Rust projects and the core cargo packages. Now, I understand that I'm going to get 20 emails a la, a la GitHub repos because somebody's going to show me some that are. But I'm just not seeing a lot of actual action. But that big asterisk, for some reason, I mean, Rust is great. I like Rust. But Rust is having this, this moment right now. If you want to flex on Twitter and <laughs> not be like that guy this week who said you have to use only uh, keyboard shortcuts or else you suck, <laughs> he got attacked so fast because why you would say that on Twitter is beyond me. But if you like one of the kind of subtle flex that you're awesome, yeah, yeah, I mean, tweet about Rust, learn Rust, do Rust. Hmm. I'm still not sure how much of this is like actually happening in the real world, but yeah, I mean, I, and if you are like some shop doing Rust as like your thing, right? I would love to talk to you and to understand how did that happen? Because, you know, Rust isn't new, new, but it, it's not, you know, it's not Python old, right? So, yep. I don't know. But yeah, it's a great new language to learn. It's the new hotness. I would always, always recommend that you learn Rust because I'm afraid of crap people. <laughs> I kind of do feel like where you're seeing a lot of traction is in open source and in the really kind of non-flashy infrastructure layer of operating systems and tools that are being built recently. Mm. So any projects that have started in the last couple of years that are building for cloud infrastructure, I think a lot of them are using Rust. Of course, my best example of this is Amazon and Microsoft, but I'm sure there are others. But I don't really see very much in, uh, well, one, the, the mobile space, and I don't really see much in the sense of the consumer space that's very that's very rusty. Yeah. So I, I guess I kind of see where you're coming from because I think the other thing that job openings would kind of indicate to you, Mike, would be more of those dark matter developers that we just love to talk about. And those positions I don't think are rust developers. I've been saying that for weeks is I, I think when you look at who people are hiring for and you want to get a day job with medical and, and, a, and a cubicle and, you know, they buy you a, a computer and like you just you want to get a jobby job, probably pretty low chance you're going to be doing rest. Which is super weird to me, though, right? Because in like mission critical scenarios like medical, the safety guaranteed by Rust, and I know it doesn't prevent like human error and like, you know, coding bad logic, but that's almost seems like the ideal vertical right yeah it's just you know the problem there of course is that is such a slow ship to turn corporate development mm. i mean it's because it's you got you got the structure you've got the development process you've got pmos you know it's just so solidified that's true lwn had an article on august 31st about supporting linux development linux kernel development in rust so they're looking at it there too if you're curious out there in the audience if you look up alex Gainer and Linux kernel, you'll see a talk on YouTube from the Linux Security Summit from last year where they focused on some of the security things that they thought would be improved if they reworked certain aspects of the kernel in Rust. I don't really know, though, uh, how far it goes. Really, Linus Torvalds and other core kernel maintainers, they've expressed some interest, but it seems like no real traction has taken. There were some proposals and discussions in the most recent uh, Linux plumbers conference, and it didn't really gain a lot of traction there either. There was a session, but I don't know. So we'll see where it goes. But it seems like if you wanted to get low level and you wanted to get into the nitty gritty of systems and you expected that work to be taking place, you know, in a couple of years as you gained experience, it probably today would be smart to start in Rust. But if you wanted to go create a web application or a mobile application or something that's in the average enterprise day job space, I don't think it's Rust. I'll put a link to the article about supporting Linux kernel development in Rust from LWN if people want to read more. What I'm taking from this, Mike, is, and tell me if I'm characterizing you wrong, is you're more 
I, I guess you could use the term bearish on rest and I'm a little more bullish on rest. Oh, no, I'm bullish on it. I'm I'm. Are you? Yeah. So but I, your point about the enterprise, right, the corporate development, I think that is what I'm seeing that I expected much more, you know, insurance company adoption, stuff like that. And I'm just not seeing it, you know, anecdotally. But I think you're right. Your whole thing about the ship being slow to turn, it may just be that those type, because you know what? They're just adopting like rails two years ago. So <laughs> I was just going to say like, it, it's the hot new thing for them still. It's yeah, very exciting for me. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fair. So sorry, writer, disregard everything I said and still go ahead and do rust. Unless, of course, you want to walk the path of enlightenment with some brackets, little X code. Of course. Yeah, and ship an app on on the Apple ecosystem for at least another couple of years. <laughs> you know, a mutual friend of ours who may be named Wimpy, let me know that GNU Step is still around and functioning. I was going to save this for later in the show, but it's true. Yeah, and I think, there. have you seen Darling, which is a macOS translation layer for Linux? I have seen Darling. Do you know what else I see? The iMac Pro right in front of me. You thinking Linux on the iMac Pro using Darling to run Mac apps? I'm thinking when this thing is immediately obsoleted in a, in three weeks or two weeks oh. by a thousand dollar ARM laptop, and I start crying about it every week. You get an ARM machine of Linux or Mac, and you just emulate or virtualize both operating systems. The bet is that the ARM processors are so fast that there will be no cost to that, right? Yeah, although I don't know if they're going to be particularly good at emulating x86 instructions, despite how fast they are. Yeah, I wonder. I think this Darling project is getting a lot of attention this week because it promises a lot. It essentially promises Wine for macOS apps on Linux. However, and this is kind of a big however, there's no GUI support right now. I was say. It, it promises a lot, right? Come with me tonight and I'll marry you in the morning kind of thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, And if you get that reference, well, then you're above the age of the MAGA canvasser. <laughs> it also promises iOS apps running on Linux, which sounds, again, uh -huh. these all feel like the type of things that Apple will just not let you do. And find ways to make hard. So I am not excited about Darling. Yeah. It is neat that it exists. And if you had a couple of essential macOS command line applications that you needed to run on Linux, it may be there. You may you may take a look at it. Uh, DarlingHQ.org will have a link in the show notes for it. But uh, I did see people talking about it in the chat room this morning. It's getting some attention. It's just, it's a long road to haul. And Apple's move away from x86 probably isn't going to make this stuff any easier, especially as they can start to come to require components in their in their CPUs. So could, could we take a fast Apple Silicon detour? Let's do it. Did you see those uh, alleged ben benchmarks that came out? Um, No, I don't know if I did see them. Well, there's a lot of folks who might have Xeons or i9s that are going to be a little verklempt. Oh, yeah? yeah? Oh, yeah. yeah. And if you dropped, I don't know, the cost of a Subaru on a Mac Pro <laughs> recently, <laughs> waves to John Syracuse, you are going to be sad within a year or two, it looks like. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me too much just based on on the performance they can get. You know, like I was just telling this to to Wes last night when we were here in the studio working and we were using the NVIDIA Shield and it was kind of getting leggy. And I said to him, he said, you know, I've got an Apple TV that's two or three generations behind. It's like the one before they had one that had 4K. So maybe it's it's a little black box, but it's not very it's not very new. And it's still consistently faster than any Android device that I own. And I, I just, you can't really, as a consumer on the outside who's not building these things, fully appreciate just the massive advantage their CPUs brought them. And it's it's obvious in a stupid Apple TV versus a almost brand new NVIDIA Shield. And I thought, well, when we were talking about that, I was like, you know, this is going to translate to performance in those laptops, too. He's like, yeah, yeah, probably will. And I, I can see it. And I can see that's why it's going to draw a lot of developers. That's, I was kind of raising that flag as I think Linux... Linux is looking really good. There are lots of good laptops to choose from. The Ubuntu desktop and Pop and all of that's in really good shape. But developers love performance. I love performance. I want it to be as fast as possible. And in 2025, when we can actually see each other again, um, battery life. <laughs> yeah, right. For when you start traveling again. Yeah, very true. But don't you think NVIDIA will be all too happy to sell like Dell and System76 and whoever makes Linux laptops? Uh you know, just like a fancy knockoff of Apple Silicon. Fair. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair statement. I could see that. 
unless there's some like voodoo that Apple has going that they can't. But I don't know. All problems can be solved with money, right? Nvidia is not poor. They can figure this out. Yeah, they could. Fi- they could figure it out. They could. Nobody's executed yet. Qualcomm, Samsung. They've tried. They've been trying for years. Right. And, and we're making the wild assumption that like Apple Silicon is going to be awesome. Right. I don't believe this, but certainly it is theoretically possible that it's a bust. I find that unlikely, but I think it's a foregone conclusion that the performance will be good because if you look at the different devices in every single category, Apple is just crushing the performance for that device category. So we just talked about like the iPads and the Apple TV, but look at the Apple Watch. That sucker, that super expensive watch that is outdated every single year is sitting at a 55% market share. They have crushed every other wearable. They're now, it's now the most popular watch. They are the most popular watchmaker in the world now. And the reason is, is because the Apple Silicon chips in the watch make the Android watches just look like dogs. They're just so slow. And I've, I've, I've bought more of those watches than I'd like to admit. I'm a Pebble owner. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, the Apple Watch has dominated the market, and it is absolutely in part, in part due to software, but it's also in part due to hardware and just their massive lead in performance and battery life there. I'm just going to stop you. When you, you mean smartwatch, they're not the number one watch. Like, what, what happened to Timex? Actually, you know what? I don't know. We should check that because I think actually it's number one watchmaker. Period. Wow, even traditional. I, I know. I know. It's sickening, isn't it? Says the guy wearing an Apple Watch right now. Apple is the number one watchmaker. Traditional watchmakers are afraid Apple has announced it is now the biggest watchmaker in the world, replacing Rolex at the top of that list. Wow. You wouldn't. No way. It's, you wouldn't believe how old this is. They have been the number one watchmaker in the world since 2017. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, Apple takes your treasure and drinks your milkshake. Got it. I mean, they've just, they've wiped the floor. And you know what? I worry that their silicon will give them that advantage in the laptop space too. So the last few weeks, there's been like a weird undercurrent with you and Apple Silicon where it sounds like you're kind of scared for the the Linux vendors like Dell. Is that that really what it is? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. And only because I've just, I've watched this game play out once before when Apple switched to x86. There was just, we talked about it. There was just a a massive exodus to the Mac platform. It landed at the same time there was desktop environment changes. But I lost a lot of Linux brothers and sisters that day. And I think the market made a huge shift towards MacBooks as standard. And then that led to the revolution in office places where developers could go start working at a company and they could get a Mac instead of a Windows machine. It was almost Linux. We were like... We were in striking distance. What year was was this? It was really when Apple started releasing MacBooks. It took a little. It took a couple of years after the x86 transition, but it really kind of started around the x86 announcement when Apple transitioned to Intel processors. And once they started getting the MacBooks out with the new design, the new MacBook name, and all of that, it just it just shifted. And you know, I saw it because I go to these events, and at first I just sort of wrote it off, but. It got to the point where we'd start counting how many machines were Linux because the rest were all just Mac. And uh, I don't know. I just feel like that that Apple executed that transition extremely well. They made the machines a compelling workhorse when they switched to x86. This time around, they have all of those lessons. And you see it reflect somewhat in their approach. They're making a lot of efforts to make virtualization a top-tier feature, I guess, of macOS. Of Linux, right? To run Linux specifically, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I guess, less doom and gloom about it. One, I, I care a lot less than you, right? Because I'm kind of like, you know, it's okay if people switch desktop operating systems. And, and you can even go back and forth, right? I guess what I feel like is going to happen is Apple's going to eat everybody's lunch for about a year or two. And then NVIDIA, because now they own ARM, I just can't see a world where, like, Dell doesn't come back swinging, I just, I, I guess I can't see it, right? That business meeting is the most obvious thing that needs to happen. You know, sit down with the Dell people. Okay, we need a developer workhorse. And it's not like anybody loves Intel, right? Maybe they go AMD, but I'm pretty sure these Apple Silicon chips are also going to eat AMD's uh, lunch in terms of mobile performance and battery life. There is another scenario. And scenario B is so much development is the net result is running on x86 
it's running on cloud servers, VPSs, whatever, EC2 that's x86 based. And some developers, maybe a lot, will look at that and go, well, I'd rather just keep my entire workflow on x86, where I'm developing the application via x86, and then when I deploy, it's on x86. And I could see that playing against Apple, and maybe it won't be a big issue, but I feel like they'll have mechanisms to solve that. People can SSH into cloud boxes that are a super good price. Like, there's a lot of ways around that issue. Well, and like Microsoft is helping them get Java over to, you know, compatibility for Apple Silicon for this reason, right? Because they sell a bunch of, you know, Azure. A lot of people run Java applications. So how long does it take them to port everything over? Like all the Unix utilities you use? A year? I bet a lot of it happens in the first few months because uh, Apple is is contributing upstream to projects to help them port. A lot of the underlying tools are getting code submissions from Apple engineers. I mean, I think your mainline development platforms, like your Rails, your Python, your you know Java, obviously, I think that's all going to be day one. Yeah. It's your more esoteric stuff, like whatever that Lovecraftian language was from the feedback section is going to be more problematic. Yes, exactly. It very much is. That's exactly what I think. And that'll be the edge cases that take a year or two or just never even make the transition. Well, it'll it'll be just like, you know, how Flash gracefully transitioned. Oh, no. Linode.com slash coder. Get a $100 60-day credit on a new account and spin up a server on Linode's dime. Linode is a fully independent cloud hosting provider with 11 markets around the world. They've been running since 2003, which if you're doing the math, that means they've been around three years before AWS and they're 100% independent. That's a nice reliability I can count on as a business owner myself. And Linode has been around since essentially user mode Linux was a thing. (laughs) So that's a really long time because they saw that as an opportunity to build something like Linode. And that's how long they've been involved. But As the years have gone on, they've gotten more and more competitive. They've been able to take advantages of hardware efficiencies and software efficiencies. And now you can get a Linode plan starting at $5 a month. And with our $100 60-day credit, well, you could play around with something a lot more powerful than the $5 a month rig. They've got dedicated CPU and GPU systems. We're spinning up a system last night (laughs) for this thing that we were trying to do. And we're sitting there doing the math and comparing to what we have run physically and It's impressive, the cost savings. In fact, when you go to linode.com slash coder, they make it really easy to try out their total cost of ownership calculator. You can plug your workloads into that and get an idea of what the cost is going to be. So there's no surprises. It's really easy to understand. They have a marketplace full of apps that you can run on your Linodes. They have stack scripts that you can modify or just take advantage of to set up and redeploy something really quickly. Nice and easy to manage storage, too. And they give you all the commands you need to get up and working with some new feature you add. So I added a disk to one of my Linodes the other night. After I add that disk, the next screen that comes up is the next four or five commands I'm likely going to want to run on my host operating system to either mount or format it. It's those little things that they know because they're Linux users that they take care of. And with the support combined with the incredibly fast network connections and the really easy-to-use dashboard... Managing your infrastructure, getting the server set up or getting the server updated, those are not the things you struggle with. You can focus on the work, on the job, you can get that done, and Linode will take care of the infrastructure. And because they cost 30 to 50% less than the major cloud providers like AWS, they're also not going to break the bank. And you can get started with that $100 credit to see what I've been talking about. It's my cloud provider, it's Jupiter Broadcasting's cloud provider, and I think you're going to love it. Go to linode.com slash coder and receive a $100 60-day credit towards your new account. And thanks to Linode for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. That's linode.com slash coder. Now, Mr. Dominic, what do you say we get into a little hoopla? And the one that the chat room has been asking about, the one that kind of has to come front and center, is the Hacktoberfest drama. And I liked your take on it, actually. Your initial take, I thought, was actually the most on point. And that was... People are really, really reacting strong this year. In fact, you and I were going back and forth on it, trying to figure out what is it about this year's Hacktoberfest that has people so worked up? Because when you look at the projects, unless I'm wrong, Mike, it's like the high end, they were getting a dozen pull requests a day on the high end. And that's not great, but it's not like we're talking tens of thousands of spam requests here. I think a little background, right? So for folks who don't know what the hell we're talking about, Hacktoberfest is 
an event that I it's GitHub and is it Dio that does it? I think it's just Dio and GitHub. I'm not sure if anybody else participates, but I know it started about four, no, seven years ago. Yeah, because we were doing the show and it, it's worked basically fine as far as I know for, I don't know, however long it's been going except for this year. And the whole deal is they want to encourage people, particularly, you know, people who aren't so involved in the open source community to get involved, right, to contribute. And the deal is you got to find you find an open source project that you're interested in on GitHub you do something hopefully valuable, you make a pull request, and huzzah, you get a t-shirt. Yeah, as a reward, you get issued some DigitalOcean swag. And like, that was fine. So, and Chris, you can correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is there's some like YouTube dude, you know, some some young, young, young fella. Kids these days, right? Kids these days. <laughs> video. <laughs> Doing uh, some kind of what do you call it? Like a like a video cast? Oh, I'm gonna throw up. He was trying to demonstrate how to do a pull request on GitHub, and he was talking about Hacktoberfest. And in his demo, he did like a you know just like a I don't know. I think he like put an awesome project or something. Well, I guess the youngins are watching the YouTubes and watching this guy because apparently a lot of people just started spamming projects and putting like. In the readme dot dot markdown, awesome project, bro, or something like that. Yeah, re- really obvious. Like just trying to do the basic requirements to get free thing. I don't know. As someone who has been yelled at in the Ubuntu forums in a past life, I'm sort of uh, yeah. I'm gonna you know you need to go first because mine is going to be too spicy. Yeah. All right. I mean, I can I can appreciate some of the load this puts on projects. I mean, I was just griping about too much to do. Funny. So the way this came on my radar first is a uh, open source developer that you and I are both familiar with. He contacted me and said, I don't know what is going on, but I'm just getting all this junk on my project this morning. It's so weird. It's really annoying. And he was grousing about it because every time somebody puts in a pull request, it sends out everybody who's monitoring and watching that project and then it generates a whole bunch of traffic and then they go and check it. And it's just like waste. Like they, it, it quickly escalates how many people's time that it wastes so the the effects are cumulative and that was part of the complaint which i i can totally get that and i totally do appreciate how annoying it is to essentially get like a a spam pull request the problem is and i love my buddies at do but initially they made a mistake in their response they kind of had a nonchalant like not really our problem. Nothing we can really do about it. People can make poll requests. <laughs> we can't stop them from making poll requests. And they kind of just shrugged it off. They did quickly, but maybe not quickly enough, change. But before they pivoted in their opinion and and decided to make this thing an opt-in exercise, it really started to roll on Twitter. It's It quickly started getting called Shittoberfest, <laughs> which... It's kind of funny. And uh, people started taking screenshots of of all of the obnoxious comments that people were making. You know, some of them are, are really, like you said, uh, great project or amazing project, you know, like just really basic comments that they've added to the code or whatever. And I, I do understand how annoying that is. DigitalOcean did come out and say, okay, 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 we got you. We're going to make it opt-in. You have to add the metadata to your repo. We'll only include the ones that have that metadata. It's going to be okay. But by that time, the damage had been done. And you got to wonder if there's going to be a Hacktoberfest next year. There probably will be, but maybe they'll scale it down to like projects that they support. Right? Who knows? So, okay. Time to get spicy. All right. couple priors here. One, I do something like this twice a year, but I give away a Thaleo. <laughs> yeah. And I make the kids do like a lot more work, right? Like you have to actually build something that works. And like, I, there's always a theme. I always do it on Earth Day. And this year I did it for the uh, election for the 4th of July. It is a pain in the butt, right? The, the grumpy open source people are right. You know what? I have to assume that most of the people sending these spam messages are like students or just young people. YouTubes. Yeah, because YouTubes. And like, yeah, like it is... It's a young person thing to do, not to be mean about it. I was a young person. I understand. I get that kind of crap when I do my competitions, which is like, fine. You just ignore it. On the other side, you know, 11 months out of the year, the biggest complaint, I think both of you, uh, you and I here, 
from folks, particularly in like the Fossey Linuxy communities, but even like the, you know, the Apple's Apple devs, stuff like that is it's so hard to get these new developers, these young people to contribute and get involved with open source. Mm. It's such a, such a bear. How do we make it? You know, all this stuff about don't make gatekeeping comments, right? Gatekeeping is now the new, you know, thing that people will yell at you on Twitter. If it seems like you're gatekeeping, right? You know, we have to be more welcoming, more inviting, more open. Okay. So 11 months out of the year, that's your thing. And then you get mildly annoyed and freak out. Like I, I, I kind of don't get it. Now, if you were to say, you know, it is not my project or my responsibility to make the broader community more open, I don't want to deal with that. Then yeah, sure. Just ignore it, you know, and be mad. But what is the point of doing all this evangelism, trying to do all this mentoring and getting young people involved in open source if you can't even tolerate like minor annoyance? It would be like if you can't listen to crying or whining or brattiness, then maybe you shouldn't have kids. I guess it all depends on scale. Uh, Optimus Gray in the chat room saying there are 39,345 issues open on GitHub with Hacktoberfest. Yeah, it's a lot of people. Apparently, kids really like T-shirts. All right, how would you solve this problem, Chris? Because you know what? Hacktoberfest has worked, right? We've had year over year many stories of young folks having like their first experience engaging with the open source communities. Yeah, yep. So, I mean, what would you do? You, I got to tell you, requiring the metadata of the project to have Hacktoberfest in it, if they do that next year, that's going to dramatically drop participation. Yeah. Well, that's why they haven't done opt-in before. But now it seems like they're going to have to. This is a tricky one because you could look at this as open source developers kind of snipping at somebody who's been a big supporter and a friend to open source, provided a lot of encouragements, monetary encouragement, you know, hosting. You could also look at it as, and this is where I think this is the, this is where this story straight into. And I, I think what we have uncovered here is actually a, a much bigger problem that was just really brought to light because of the scale that DigitalOcean can bring to something like this. But, you know, I have friends in the Linux community who are always trying to come up with new ways to help developers, help them out. And a lot of times they don't appreciate how hard the developer's job is, how busy they are, and how trying to help can sometimes actually just create a lot more work. And you see this a lot with Linux because people are so appreciative of the great free software they get. You know, you get a desktop. It's got a desktop environment. It's got a great web browser. It's got a great office suite. It's And you realize individuals built these things. And you just feel so immensely grateful for some, some people. And they want to help by finding bugs and, and filing bug reports and maybe encouraging lots of people. And, you're, and now some of these people who just love Linux so much and open source and free software, they now have a following on YouTube as time has gone on. And now they have potentially thousands or even tens of thousands of people who follow them. And so when they say, let's all go do something, it creates a DDoS and they're just trying to help, you know, just trying to help bring up the quality of your of your project or help file bugs or, you know, whatever it is. It ends up creating a shitstorm of work for the developer. And I, I had to think about this recently because I decided to do a bugathon on Linux Unplugged. And I was like, I don't want to do it in a way where all of a sudden I create a thousand bug reports for a project and they just have no means of handling it. And they just sit there open all the time. So what I did is I looked at the project and I looked at what the developer's timetable was for Fedora 33, and I saw where there was a test window, a week where they were asking the public to submit bugs, and they as a team were all bug testing. They were all dogfooding as a team for this week. I took that idea and I said, well, that's what we aim for. We aim for the bug week. We contacted the developers. We worked with a couple of people in, in, in the project and we said, this is when we're doing it. We prepared them for it. And then a couple of them joined us during the live stream and we did it with them during a bugathon, that bugathon during a testing week. And I, I took so many precautions because I didn't want to essentially DDoS them. And I think this happens a lot by accident because some of these projects got one, one person. And we don't mean to hurt them. We don't mean to give them a shitstorm. We're trying to help, but instead we're doing harm. And it's it's a really tricky balance. And I think Hacktoberfest just exposed it at a large scale because it happened to a ton of projects at once. Because 
once or twice, you know, every now and then on Telegram, I'll get a I'll get a message from a, a, a Linux dev that we all know, and they'll they'll grouse at me about this problem, and and oh yeah, okay, I didn't really realize, and then I you know okay okay I hear it, and then it kind of moves on. It's just that one developer, but this was like a lot of people all at once. Even projects like uh, uh, UbiPorts, you know, Ubuntu Touch, and and Elementary OS, some of their projects, like even the projects that are like smaller in scope and scale, like components of those projects, were getting spam pull requests. There's maybe just going back to the premise, right? Assuming, as I do, that Dio is like trying to be a good community member. Maybe the way they're doing this is just bad. Should you maybe partner with like Canonical because Ubuntu is the only uh, distro that exists? And I don't know, work with them to have like do this on a specific project. But then you're cutting down the potential participation, right? Because what if sure? What if someone only knows C sharp, right, or whatever? And you know, funny enough, it's probably more work, right? Because now you're coordinating with the specific projects instead of just saying go make a PR request and let us know about it. Now you're interfacing with a group of developers trying to come to some sort of understanding. All of a sudden, it's a lot more work. My answer when you originally asked how would I solve it was going to be essentially hire a developer for a project for a month or something like some way a system hire a developer yeah like hire a developer to work on a project that needs help you know something yeah but th- that doesn't help with the stated goal of getting new people involved in open source that just mm. gives like whatever project you you like you know whatever elementary ubuntu more more you know which i'm sure they'd appreciate what's the value of training say 30, 40,000, let's just say it's 20,000. Some of them made multiple. Is there is there a real value in training 20,000 people how to do a pull request? They wouldn't make GitHub accounts. Is there value in that? This is where I think things actually went off the rails. The guy who did a YouTube video and felt that the problem was people didn't know how to make a pull request. I think he was fundamentally correct. And this I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for this one because I guess this is a little bit, quote unquote, hashtag gatekeeping. If you're going to impose upon these open source developers and they're going to get these, you know, kids trying to help them, then you also take the set of people who literally doesn't know how to make a pull request, right? And you show them how to make crappy pull requests, you create this problem. It's awful to say, but having some barrier that will weed out some, frankly, just spammy college kids who want a t-shirt, I think is an acceptable trade-off. Ideally, we would try to get everybody who's interested in open source doing it, even if it's like open source, like an iOS thing or whatever. But you do have to be respectful of the folks who run these projects. And if if the choice you're giving me, if I'm, you know, king of the O, which I'm not, but if my choice is we never do this very successful campaign again, or we're slightly less welcoming, we're slightly less accommodating, and we leave the absolute least trained, least equipped to actually be... Because by the way, the ones who also don't know how to create a pull request probably don't know how to like send you a meaningful contribution anyway. Well, and isn't the proof in the pull requests? They are very low quality, very low value. So right. I think you could argue that we've just done the big experiment. And what we've determined is you can turn 20,000 people into GitHub pull requesters, but it doesn't mean you're going to get a pull request that's any good. <laughs> Value's low. You have created pull request script kiddies. Congratulations. Right. <laughs> I guess it was the OctoScript kitties. I don't know. Now there are, speaking of scripts, there are some tools that have been released to help people clean clean up from this. It'll go through and, and kind of just automatically clean up all this stuff for you. So Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, like the f- devs who we both know who are upset about this are right to be upset, right? I, didn't, I wasn't trying to sound like, oh, suck it up. It's Dio has put this burden on you, frankly, right? <laughs> like that's, and let's, Call a spade a spade. This is a great marketing campaign for DO2. That's why they do it. So Right, right. You know, it almost makes me wonder if maybe the way to do it is at smaller scale, more like at a podcast scale, where it's yeah. where if we did something like this, it would be twenty or thirty people, right? Right. <laughs> and then the project would actually have an option to maybe have a conversation with a couple of them and convert somebody into a long term contributor. At, at the scale, it's just impossible for developers to engage with these with these new participants. And I think you and I would want to have a conversation with whatever project we wanted to partner with, right? We wouldn't just be like, I'm just going to make one up. Hey, elementary guys, we're sending 30 people your way. <laughs> Enjoy. Like, we wouldn't do that because that's awful. Yeah. So never mind. Bad marks to Dio. 
Yeah, we'll see. I bet you by this time next year, it's pretty much mostly forgotten, and they just they make a big stink about having to, you know, put the Hacktoberfest stuff in your repo, and it's, I don't know. Yeah, I think people aren't going to do it. I'm telling you, I don't think it's going to be forgotten. Yeah, I don't think people would do it either. You're right. Devs are devs are moody uh, moody V's. Why would you do it? Right. Why would you? You're just gonna get a bunch of crap. Exactly. It, 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 yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> t- it's uh, not gonna happen. Yeah. No. Oh, I think we just watched Hacktoberfest die. I think that's what just happened. Possibly. It was created during the show, and it will end during the show. We are the alpha and omega. Yeah. Yeah. We have watched several things come and go. I suppose. And, you know, that plays in really nicely to mentioning that our first quarterly report is out for the Coder QA team. We did one last week and published it to the members feed. So if you become a Coder QA at CoderQA.co, you get access to our quarterly reports. You support the show, obviously, and we really appreciate that. And you get a limited ad feed. So that's nice, too. Full produced production, all that good stuff edited, but you just get a limited ad feed. And that quarterly Coderly, <laughs> which the first one is out. Thank you to everybody who does support the show at CoderQA.co. I also want to take a moment and say, if you can't afford to support the show or you're not interested in supporting the show, but you listen anyways, we still appreciate that, especially if you listen to our sponsors and engage when they make sense and visit the URLs to let them know you heard them here. That that all we really appreciate too. And also another way to support the show that isn't monetary at all is just Mentioning it to somebody else who you think might enjoy the show. Word of mouth is the number one way that podcasts are marketed. If you think about it, a podcast is a big ask of somebody's time. And so you're going to need somebody you trust telling you, hey, you should go listen to this hour-long show that you've never heard of before. People don't just generally pick up an hour-long show and start listening, unless they're specifically looking for something. And obviously it happens because you're listening right now. But you're much more likely if somebody recommends it to you. So you could be that person. So thank you to our Coder QA team, and thank you to everybody who helps promote the show. We really appreciate all of it. Really grateful. The response still to us being back has been really strong and awesome. It's been really great. It's gratifying to see all of that. We appreciate everybody who's been sending in the emails. We could use a whole other batch. So go to coder.show slash contact to uh, send us in an email or feedback. Or you can hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chris Last. The show is at Coda Radio Show. And Mr. Dominic, I, I think maybe you created an account this week. You're on Twitter as well now. That's right. It's at Dumanuko. What? And of course, our sponsor, ACG, a cloud guru is on YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook. Just slash a cloud guru at any of them. YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook slash a cloud guru to find them. Well, Mr. Dominic, is there anything else we want to mention this week? Uh, no. I mean, if you are a confused teenager who that doesn't know he can't vote and you would like to show up at Chris's house. Yeah, I would or RV. I would encourage you to. <laughs> I think I live with three of them right now. I tell you what, they've all got opinions, strong opinions and no ability to act on them. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I know how they feel. Kind of like the PRs. Oh, <laughs> that's where it's going. Coder.show slash 382 for the links to everything we talked about today. Of course, we got that contact page slash subscribe for the feeds. If you want to get the show weekly, why wouldn't you? And last but not least, you could join us live on a Monday. We do it at noon Pacific. 3 p.m. Eastern at jblive.tv. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of Coda Radio. See you next week.